good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Let's Talk About It. This is Susan Johnson, and my co-host, Dennis O'Brien, is out doing great things in the community today, so he won't be joining us. But, boy, do we have a fabulous guest for you today. We have James Aldis, and he's he used to be the deep senior advisor in the commissioner's office from 2019 to 21, but he also served with me as a state representative from 2011 to 2019, and he is a deep policy director for planning for materials management, which is very a big deal and something that we really need to take a look at uh, in this state. And now he is the House Democrats senior policy advisor right now, and I'm so glad he's joined House Democrats. So, And thank you for joining us on WILI. Let's talk about it. Thank Thank you so much, James. Susan, thanks so much for having me, and I have to say it's great to be able to work with you so closely again. I'm really excited about the upcoming session. So am I, and I remember all the great work you did as the chairman of the Environment Committee, and I know that you did a lot of great work when I was uh, uh, doing regs review, and we worked together very well with the executive branch. And I'm looking forward to our next few sessions because I'm thinking, you know, this is going to be a, a time of, of making a lot of good changes and a time of really analyzing what's going on with all the things that are happening in the state and things that are happening nationally and internationally with respect to our environment. Yes, uh, there, there's certainly no shortage of things in the environmental realm to discuss. Um, you know, you've, you've got uh, the specter of climate change, which is already affecting us. Um, you know, every day uh, here in Connecticut and, and across the globe. Um, and uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the importance of thinking about materials management, which is, I guess, the, the policy wonk way of saying uh, trash policy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking forward to talking about that with you as well. Oh, me too, because I used to be here on the council here, and I chaired the Mid-Northeast Recycling Operating Committee, and also I was chairman of the uh, the Utilities Committee, which included uh, how to manage the waste, uh, what to do with the uh, sewage treatment facility, how to deal with our waterworks. All those things came under utilities, and uh, I also helped with uh, creating the recycling. Uh, we changed from 8% recycling when I was there from uh, 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 2000, uh, no, oh my goodness, 1989 <laughs> to, to, to uh, uh, 1992, and, uh, and that's when we made a lot of changes. We went from uh, 8% recycling to 30% recycling. We also revamped our, uh, our you know, waste, uh, waste facility here. Uh, the transfer station for recycling was upgraded uh, with some of the uh, funds that we received from the state. And we also helped, we had a little money left over, and our regions just said, hey, why don't we do a, a household collection facility, household chemical collection facility. And so therein was the creation of the Mid-Northeast Recycling Operating Committee, and we had a great uh, opportunity, and we still do to this day, uh, take the household uh, chemicals and have them recycled uh, anytime from April through November. You can go to Willington and have your chemicals collected there, and they will take care of them. So I was really proud of all that work that the town did with the region, and uh, I think that, you know, these are the things that we're looking at doing some more of uh, because we have a huge uh, list of things to do with uh, our materials management situation. So, yes, I'm very excited about that. Yeah, and I, I think you're you're right to be proud of the work that your region has done uh, over the years. I think you've probably punched above your weight <laughs> in terms <laughs> of uh, you know what, what you've been able to accomplish in, in your part of the state. Um, 
you know, and, and that's certainly thanks to your efforts. And you know, I, I, I think it's also uh, uh, important to plug the fact that your your mayor, uh, Tom DeVivo, has spent his career in, in the waste management and recycling industry. So you all have a lot of experience, um, you know, uh, being at the forefront of thinking about materials management and waste management. Uh, but but you're right; it is a a really challenging time um, in in that space uh, currently in Connecticut. Um, you know, if you, uh, I, I know you, you're aware of this, Susan, but your your listeners may be aware of the fact that um, you know we have not had landfill, active landfills, uh, managing our trash in Connecticut since the late '80s, early '90s. Um, we have relied primarily on waste to energy facilities to um, you know, manage our our waste disposal. So um, rather than uh, putting our waste up in piles where it, uh, toxic uh, um, you know, leachate can get into the soil and, and impact our groundwater and our drinking water resources, uh, not having to deal with those odors, um, you know, in, in a very densely populated state, um, you know, trying to uh, avoid the siting uh, concerns of, 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 you know, the myriad landfills that we we had uh, in, in the prior century. It, it, the state made a conscious decision in, in the 80s and 90s to move uh, from landfills to waste to energy. And for a very long time, we were able to manage uh, all of our waste disposal, you know, that, that being the trash that can't be recycled um, through uh, our waste to energy facilities. Um, Excellent. Point. However, Excellent. yes, uh, so it, 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 there were a, a lot of benefits at that time. Um, However, over the years, uh, those facilities have been deteriorating. Um, it, in particular, the uh, one of the larger facilities in the state, uh, the Mira uh, facility in Hartford, um, which shuttered its doors for managing waste uh, in um, in July of I, I believe it was 2022. Mm, I think uh, you're so right. It, yeah. it, it's it's been uh, you know, a challenge since then for the state to to manage its own waste. So rather than relying on these facilities that we had within our state's borders, uh, we are now shipping about 40% of all uh, trash requiring some sort of disposal because it can't be recycled, uh, because it's thrown in the trash, uh, out uh, to other states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Virginia to be landfilled there. Um, so that has posed a, a significant challenge. Um you know, not just for, um, you know, the folks doing that uh, management, but also for municipalities who are seeing their bills uh, increase to be able to throw away waste. It's, it's more expensive to ship waste, you know, over several state lines um, to, to dispose of it. Um, we have less control over those costs because they are run by out-of-state entities. Um, so it, it's, it's a problem that municipalities have been dealing with, and um, there have been some efforts to try to improve uh, recycling and and you know we've, we've been trying to get uh better messaging out there there's a um a nonprofit organization that was set up by the state um about uh about 10 years ago called recycle ct that has been doing a phenomenal job in getting uh the message out about recycling they've developed a uh, an app for your phone that you can download that will uh, it's called the recycle ct wizard and it will tell you what materials can and can't be recycled you could literally just type in a, a type of material like soda can into uh, the search function on the app, and it will tell you how to how to uh, manage it. If you could throw it in the recycling bin, if there if you have to bring it to um, you know a, another facility, for example, if there's a if it's a household hazardous waste material, it will tell you that that's the way it needs to be disposed. 
uh, it will tell you, um, you know, if, if it's food scraps, w- what your options are for, for managing it. So, um, you know, there, there have been some uh, good uh, good items of progress made on that front. Do they like, go by probably... address? Because okay. I want to just, uh, you know, for, for purposes of where we're headed uh, in this conversation and, and in terms of what the, where the state is headed and the municipalities, looking at organic waste, uh, do mm-hmm. they, some places are doing work with it, other places are looking to try and uh, do work with it. And I was just uh, at the southeastern region uh, discussing organic waste, and uh, they seem to have a pretty good plan, and and it's a little bit different from what I received uh, a couple of years ago when I asked about organic waste recycling uh, and uh, where we've moved forward to with respect to not being as concerned with, say, somebody puts a piece of paper in with all your other organic food um, that you're trying to, you know, turn into uh, fertilizer or whatever it is you turn it into when you uh, recycle it. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered, does that website have information about organic waste and how, how does that work? So I, I would say that, that uh, the, the Recycle CT uh, wizard doesn't necessarily have the information that residents may be looking for. A lot of that information is available either on your town's website or uh, on the state's website. But the, the bottom line is towns can decide how they want to manage organic waste, generally meaning food scraps. So, right. you know, your, your uh, banana peels, your leftover food that uh, you would otherwise throw away, um, you know, f- onion rinds that you, don't, um, that, that you don't use for cooking, you know, things of that nature. That, you're, uh, that makes up a lot of what we actually throw in the trash. Right. Um, it, it's about 20, uh, 22, 23% of everything that's in the trash is food scraps that could otherwise be recycled. That's huge. Um, so... It's, it's a huge portion, and, and frankly, it makes up uh, a, a significant percentage of what we're shipping out of state uh, to, to the states I mentioned, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, for landfilling. So there are uh, a few different options that uh, residents may have, depending on where you live. Uh, a, a different town, uh, you know, towns across the state have made different types of progress on organics uh, recycling. Uh, the, the state uh, is in the process of running a uh, series of pilot programs in various municipalities. Uh, towns had an opportunity to apply for these pilot programs a couple of years ago, and uh, it, it, the pilot programs are um, geared toward propping uh, collection of food scraps up uh, in, in towns. And towns have figured out different ways to do this. Two of the more common uh, ways that towns are doing it are uh, one which is called co-collection. Uh, it's, a, it's a funky term, but it, what it really means is uh, you get two different colored bags, um, one uh, like an orange bag for trash and a green bag for food scraps. So you separate you know, the, the, your food scraps from your trash uh, you know, when you're cooking dinner or, or cleaning up from dinner. Um, and you put all your food scraps into the green bag. Uh, at the end of the week, when it's time to have your trash picked up, you put all your orange bags and all your green bags into your trash can, into the same trash can. And the, the uh, trash hauler will come pick it up. Uh, they will send it to a facility where the green bags are then sorted away from the orange bags and sent to different locations. Um, so the, the food scraps are typically sent to a, a local composting facility. Uh, a town may have a composting facility where, where they will make uh, – uh, they will take organic waste and, and make compost out of it and make it available to residents to, to use on 
you know, in their own backyards. Um, or th- th- these materials will go to what's called an anaerobic digestion facility. We have one of those facilities in the state of Connecticut located in Southington, and it takes the food scraps and turns it into um, you know, compost that can be marketable. Mm-hmm. And it also creates electricity to send back to the grid. I don't think you could ask for more, especially since it's organic waste uh, and it's not made from chemical creations. So it probably is a better type of a way to fertilize your garden. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it's generally very clean material uh, it's, and it's uh, potentially cheaper than, than some other options that are out there. So it's, it, it, it's a really useful product um, and it's, it's, uh, creating green energy. It's, it's creating zero emission energy. So it's, it's, it's really a fantastic solution. Um, but what you know, makes these types of facilities um, operate well is when they have a lot of food scraps coming in. So sure. you know, we're, we're sort of looking, we're, we're nibbling around the edges here uh, on a town-by-town basis. And, and the towns that are doing these pilot programs are doing quite well. Um, one of the other... Um, primary ways that towns are collecting food scraps is at their transfer stations. So many smaller towns across the state, as you know, uh, have uh, transfer stations where um, you know, folks can direct, self-haul, uh, directly bring their trash and recyclables to that facility rather than have somebody pick it up at the curb. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we have both here that, in Wyndham. We have a transfer yes. station which takes all kinds of things, and, uh, and uh, so that would be one thing maybe they'd want to add to the, to the uh, process. But we'd also probably have to create a, you know, some type of a contract with Southington or some other place close by. I think they have, uh, do they have a place in southeastern Connecticut? for um, uh, addressing how to uh, make the composting, make turning the food scraps into composting? Is there a place around here? There are several uh, composting uh, operations throughout the state, including, uh, I believe, at least one in, in eastern Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the only anaerobic digestion facility, the type of facility that turns it into uh, electricity as well, is located in Southington. But there, at least that's the only commercially operating one. There are a handful of anaerobic digesters that are on farms, but those are primarily managing waste that's generated on the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a little bit uh, different of a, a model than uh, you know, the, the ones that accept solely food scraps. Is there a difference um, in terms of the when you get to the, the anaerobic one in Southington, could they take farm waste and mix it with the food waste? They, I don't believe they are permitted to do that. I see. Um, you know, the the advantage of the um, the facility in Southington is that it's taking clean food waste. When yep. you start talking about um, you know farm waste, mm-hmm. some of that is manure, right? And when you combine that with food scraps, uh, the options for end use of that byproduct uh-huh. are are more limited. Um, so the, 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 it's a more versatile product when it's it's just clean food scraps. I see. So that that has been sort of the focus. Mm-hmm. You know, for for separating food scraps at the source, you, you you're able to get a clean compost that you can use in your your backyard, uh, in your garden, um, and you also get electricity uh, mm-hmm. to boot. So interesting. Um, so you know the the program the towns that have done these programs have been largely successful. They've seen pretty good diversion rates. They have also uh, oddly enough seen increases in their recycling rates. Uh, of, of, you know, blue bin materials, I think maybe because people are starting to become a little more conscious of what they're throwing away. Uh, so that's a sort of an added benefit that I don't think was expected from the program. 
Um, but, you know, ultimately these programs do require some costs to get off the ground. That's why the state ran this uh, pilot program with, with some grant money. Um, so, you know, the, the thinking is that once you prove uh, that the programs can work, uh, when you get a large enough volume, you create significant cost savings for the municipality. The, the tipping, tipping fees for uh, sending food scraps to this uh, Southington facility, for example, are much lower than the tipping fees for shipping waste out of state for landfilling. Oh, so, yes. But uh, what about to if, our local waste to energy facilities? Are they about, are they comparable? It depends on, on uh, the municipality and, sure. the, and the contract that you have. Um, mm-hmm. There are some waste energy facilities that uh, have very favorable contract terms uh, for the, the municipalities and, and relatively low tip fees. We, we expect those to, to maybe uh, change as, as, new con- as the contracts expire and new ones are uh, entered into by the municipalities. And then there are some that, uh, where the, uh, the pricing is, is much higher than uh, shipping food scraps to an anaerobic digestive facility. So it's really dependent, but the, the general trend is that costs are rising and, and not at an insignificant rate. Well, I, I would imagine that given the fact that uh, the Harford facility is closed and that when the contracts start to expire, uh, the places that we're sending it to Harford and are now sending it out of state will be in competition with the, peop- with the other towns that have uh, contracts that are in existence, and it will make the cost go up because of the supply and demand ac- uh, access situation. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, you know, the, the, the key for successful organic diversion, I think, is making it um, easy for residents. And I, I, I personally think that the co-collection model, where you have two separate colored bags, you put them both in your trash can, is the easiest way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and how and do they get, I know Middletown had some concerns about that because they had created the two bags, but they charged a fairly substantial amount for a bag. And it seems like uh, maybe it could have been a little bit less. But maybe that goes to the tipping fee, or so th- that's generally d- designed to further encourage folks to uh, throw food scraps in the green bag rather than the orange bag. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it's you're you're right in that the orange bags uh, could be more expensive uh, than than traditional bags. I think you know over the course of a year, it, it's really a negligible difference between you know, the, the cost of the orange bags and what you'd otherwise be paying for, you know, the trash bags that you would buy at the store. Yeah. Um, but you're a little more conscious of what you're throwing in the orange bag because of that associated cost. And you're more likely to throw items in, the, you know, food scraps in the green bag or throw recyclables into the blue bin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what Middletown has seen. So, uh, yeah, it, it, there have certainly been some... Uh, you know, folks complaining. I think there there always will be when you're making that sort of a change, but by and large, uh, Middletown has seen great success with their program, and uh, it, so so much success, in fact, that they uh, voted to make the program uh, cover their entire uh, central district, mm-hmm. uh, which is 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 huge. Um, so. You know, that's a, a big step forward, and the program seems to be working quite well. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I saw them uh, work it out, and they had a lot of meetings discussing it with the people in the town, and I think that they're doing great work. It's it's an amazing thing, and it's something that, you know, I think we have to take a look at, you know, how they're doing it in, say, apartment buildings and that kind of thing. But right mm-hmm. now, uh, we're going to... Uh, 
go for a break and let our sponsors say hello. And we will be right back after these messages. This is James Albus, and he is talking to us about the environment. He's been working on these issues for years, and we are thrilled to have him here on Let's Talk About It. And we will be right back after these messages. Hey, welcome back, everyone. This is Susan Johnson, and I'm here with our very special guest, uh, James Albus, and he has been doing great work uh, with the environmental with environmental issues for several years. He's now working with uh, our colleagues uh, in the Capitol, and he's here to talk to us about what we will be looking forward to to try and make sure we do the right things with our environment and our recycling issues. So welcome back, and uh, thank you. We're talking about what what, what was going to happen with some of the organic waste to say, for example, in large apartment complexes like what happened in Middletown? Yeah, so, uh, you know, multifamily housing has always been a challenge with um, recycling and and issues related to, to waste management because, you know, for, for a few reasons. Uh, you know, first of all, it, it's uh, a little bit different than a, a single-family household where, you know, you, you – as your family unit are kind of uh, keeping tabs on what's going on uh, to, to know, you know, okay, this is our trash day. Um, let's make sure we're, uh, you know, taking everything out to the curb. You can set up your recycling bin in, a, in an area where it's convenient for your family. Um, you know, depending on the structure of the multifamily housing, uh, you know, you, you could have different uh, ways to, to do your waste management. So maybe you have a chute where you drop your trash down and, and recycling might be less convenient. It might be a, a, um, in a dumpster outside. So you, you may decide on a really cold uh, day, you, you don't want to walk outside and you just dump your recycling down the, the chute. Um, you know, there, there are, are those types of problems that exist. And, you know, there, you're also subject to whatever programming the landlord offers. So if the landlord doesn't have a, um, a way to recycle, you know, that poses an obvious challenge for residents. Uh, it's, you know, against the law. Every uh, residential facility is supposed to provide uh, options for recycling, but sometimes uh, they don't. Um, and, you know, unless the uh, state gets a complaint <laughs> about mm -hmm. it, uh, they, there's not much you can do about it. Um, so, you know, the, it, multifamily has always been uh, an issue. And I think the, the real key uh, is um, ensuring that we have adequate uh, education and adequate enforcement where, where feasible. Absolutely. So, you know, I, yeah. I, I think I, that's where oh, – oh, go ahead, Susan. No, I'm sorry. I, no, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just I wanted to agree with you because uh, when you get into urban areas like where we are in Willimantic or Middletown or any of these places, and then we have uh, places, of course, where you have students, people moving in and out of the district, moving in and out of uh, multifamily dwellings, it really is uh, a, a, an issue because you don't have, uh, say, like a suburban community would have people that don't move in and out as often as we do in, in more of the urban areas, especially ones that have students. So trying mm -hmm. to get everybody acclimated seems to me to be one of the difficult things. Uh, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that was my... No, I think that's a good point. Transience is also a, a challenge. Um, you know, when you have people moving in and out, um, you know, it, it's not easy to get acquainted to, to all of the um, nuances of, <laughs> of where you live, especially if you're, you know, a a college community and you have people living, you know, just for a, a couple semesters in, in one place and then moving out or just a year and then moving somewhere else. Um, you know, you, you have to get used to new uh, 
procedures and protocols, uh, you know, where, wherever you are. So that's that's another challenge. So, uh, you know, anytime you're creating a new uh, program, especially for something like a waste management, which is something everybody deals with on a day-to-day basis, but probably doesn't think that much about, uh, you know, they, they uh, have their habits and are, are, you know, do things sort of reflexively. Uh, education is really key. Um, so uh, in the towns that have done these pilot programs for food scraps collection, you know, education has really been a strong component. And, and a, a lot of the uh, dollars that are attached to these pilot programs uh, from state grants have been directed toward education, uh, you know, pamphlets, um, social media advertising, public uh, events, uh, you know, raising awareness and and providing information about the program. So, you know, that's a really key uh, piece of it. And we've seen those that education be relatively successful in places that do have, you know, a, a larger amount of multifamily housing, like Middletown and Meriden and West Haven. So it can be done. Um, that's not to say it doesn't come without challenges, but, but it can be done for sure. Well, I just was thinking when you were saying that about how, um, how it covers everything, and I'll never forget when I first started working at, with, uh, with the Utilities Committee here in town and on the council, and uh, which was before it was Board of Selectmen, and I thought, my goodness, this covers every single thing <laughs> that we have and do. And so solid waste management or all that covers every single thing in your house, and, and, and uh, it just covers everything about your daily living and uh, the structure of your home, if there's some type of uh, change in, you know, you're ripping some room out or something. There's all kinds of as- aspects to this that uh, that really, if you're, if you're not working in the area, you may not think about it. You just think, oh, I'm going to put this here, and it's going to get taken away, and a lot of people don't even think about where it goes. Yeah, that, I think that's right. The average person just wants to be able to put their trash out and know that it's going to be taken away. Right. <laughs> and I, I don't blame people for, for no, thinking that. No, I don't that. either, I that's, but... <laughs> that's the, the right mentality you should have. Uh, but, you know, there what happens after that pickup, uh, you know, can affect how much you have to pay for it and, mm-hmm. and how much your municipality has to pay for it. And, and, you know, that's why, uh, you know, folks like us who are in, in this space need to think about, okay, what, what can we do on the front end that might, you know, it might change things a little bit for people. Um, it, it might take some getting used to, but will ultimately reduce their costs, uh, save money for towns and, and, you know, allow, uh, allow us to do things in a more cost effective, environmentally sustainable way. Absolutely. That's that's. It's very exciting to me to think about uh, moving on to organic waste. I think that they've done a pretty good job with it in New York City. I haven't looked at how they how they did that, but uh, I was really impressed when I found out they were doing it there. And of course, you couldn't ask for more multifamily dwellings than you could in New York City, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and how that's they right. do it there. So that's something I think maybe we can all take a peek at at some point in time. But um, you know. Moving on a little bit uh, out of the uh, solid waste and, and organic waste, uh, you know, issues, we do have uh, some other issues coming on, and those electronic vehicles are are an issue. And uh, you know, as as these things go, um, you know, we have to uh, take a look at how we're going to be able to deal with them. And I just saw a report on the news; I think it was last night about how it's harder to keep them charged in cold weather. And there's a lot of other things about the lithium batteries that uh, I don't know as that we've explored as thoroughly as we could. Yeah, so it, it, you're right. Electric vehicles is a sort of a, an emerging area that folks are paying a lot more attention to. 
And uh, let, let me uh, try to explain why that is, uh, especially for Connecticut. Sure. So um, Connecticut has a really poor air quality, some of the poorest air quality in the nation. And that's due to a number of factors, um, including you know, the, the fact that we are a, a very densely populated state with two major highways and or three major highways that have uh, you know, significant uh, congestion around the interchanges. Um, we, the, the, where we happen to be situated is sort of downwind from states that uh, pollute in terms of, you know, uh, electric generation facilities and other large manufacturers. We get a lot of the dirty air uh, that gets blown in from other states. Um, but transportation makes up a significant portion of the uh, contributor in terms of contribution to our poor air quality. So we already have, uh, we're already under the microscope from EPA uh, through the Clean Air Act for our uh, inability to meet their standards for air quality. Um, we, we have not been in compliance with EPA's uh, standards for quite some time, uh, decades. Mm. And uh, part of what, uh, one of the remedies that Connecticut has uh you know, look to, to to try to improve our air quality over the last 20 years or so has been uh, through vehicle emissions. So EPA has some, uh, some of their own uh, standards for vehicle emissions. But um, I want to say in the 80s or 90s, California was given a waiver from uh, the EPA to develop their own standards because California was dealing with very significant smog problems that was due uh, essentially uh, primarily to uh, from transportation, from, from cars and trucks. Um, so California developed their own standards that went above and beyond the EPA's. And the EPA allowed other st- states to join California's standards. Uh, so for states that had poor air quality, like Connecticut, it was a it kind of a no-brainer choice. And uh, about uh, 20 years ago, Connecticut, uh, in a bipart- the Connecticut legislature, in a bipartisan way, uh, decided to join the California program. And they required uh, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection to update their regulations every so often to match the California program. Uh, so w- we have been in that program for, for quite some time. Um, there was a r- very recent California update in 2022 or 2023 uh, that uh, looked to ensure that cars manufacturers were selling to car dealers were zero emission vehicles and it sort of had standards that ramped up over time. So a a certain percentage would be required um, every year uh, starting in uh, car model year 2026, which is actually calendar year 2025, (laughs) Um, uh, ramping up to 2035 uh, to 100, ultimately 100% of all uh, passenger vehicles um, being sold to be uh, electric. Well, uh, you mean or, all or, new, or all, other zero emissions, so all, other types of technologies would be uh, available. Sure, all new passenger vehicles. All, all, yes, any, uh, any new vehicle. So the, the regulations are specific to the car manufacturers and says, you know, when you are selling your new vehicles to dealers, this percentage has to be, uh, zero emission. Um, so, you know, it, it, I, I think it, it, this is it, it, the proposal uh, is really significant because it could cut uh, negative air emissions by uh, quite a bit and improve our air quality. 
uh, by a lot. But I think there were, uh, you know, a number of uh, concerns that were brought up by uh, policymakers that uh, you know needed some some further debate. So, um, and and frankly, there was a lot of misinformation going on going around about uh, the proposal. So, you know, that that's why electric vehicles have have been sort of at the forefront. Um, so, you know, Susan, I'm, I'm happy to delve into any specific topics related to the what's on the table now uh, for Connecticut, um, w- where we might be going, or if you have any specific questions about EVs. I've, I've had sure. to get up to speed rather quickly since I started <laughs> <laughs> my so new job. I, I've been analyzing this as well, and I've because I've been looking at cars, and I just bought myself a hybrid uh, EV, uh, so it can be it's a charging hybrid. Uh, mm-hmm. So I can charge it. I can just run on electric. I can run as a hybrid with gasoline and uh, the, uh, you know, electric uh, charge that occurs in any hybrid vehicle. And, of course, the hybrid vehicles uh, could have been hybrid for years because, <laughs> as we all know, electricity is created by friction. And where do we get the friction in our vehicles? When we put on the brakes. And that's how it charges the battery. So mm-hmm. it's just uh, something that I have enjoyed since I got my little C Max back in 2017, but now I got myself a, a Hornet, a Dodge Hornet, and it charges so I can plug it in. It's a plug-in and it's a hybrid, so it does all three things. So you don't worry That's about running great. out of gas. You have the chance to be all electric whenever you can get charged and have the time for that, and I plan to set something up in my yard at some point, but also utilize the places around that have uh, charging spots. We do have some at Stop and Shop here has a charger. Uh, so if I go in and get my groceries, I can charge up my battery a little bit. Um, and I look in my car in my in my new vehicle, and I look and I see, wow, it's got um, one for 120 volt, another one for 240 volts. Get and the 240 volts is half the time of the 120 volts. Mm-hmm. So those are the the kinds of things that I've been thinking about. Unknown and uh, and that is like uh, one of the things that we're taking uh, t- into consideration when we take a look at these things. But let's take a peek at first at the lithium batteries and mm-hmm. uh, just uh, take a look at that and see how uh, that is uh, something that, uh, you know, uh, is difficult in cold weather, but also uh, doesn't have emissions. But it has uh, things that I don't think as people are as trained in uh, the lithium-type chips uh, running a car than they would be, say, as a gas motor. And I think some of the training for people who have that uh, are are the uh, some of the concerns I think some people have. Yeah, so like any technology, there are definitely some advantages with lithium-ion batteries and some disadvantages. I mean, the obvious advantage, as you noted, is that there are no uh, emissions, which is great. Um I, I think another advantage is that they're really quiet compared to, uh, you know, gasoline-powered cars. Um, you know, the, the technology is evolving, so you know, I, I think the average lithium-ion battery car today can has a range of somewhere around 300 miles on a, on a charge, a full charge. Mm-hmm. So that you know, I, I drive a, I admit I drive a gas-powered uh, Chevy Cruze. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a small hatchback. It gets pretty good gas mileage. Uh, I could get, you know, 450 miles on a tank. Wow, that's wonderful. <laughs> so, Very good. Uh, it, it's great, uh, but that is certainly more than the average uh, lithium-ion battery today. Uh, that, that said, the average range has increased significantly since uh, the first electric vehicle 
<coughs> uh, came out. Um, so, you know, the, the, the technology is improving. Um, you know, I, I want to address some other concerns that I've heard about it. Obviously, the, the cold weather concern, yes, uh, batteries uh, tend to perform worse in cold weather. That's the same with gas-powered vehicles, too. The, your, your gas mileage typically goes down. Um, there are, you know, other countries in the world, like Norway, that have had uh, greater electric vehicle proliferation than, than we have here in the U.S. that have dealt with this, this problem. Uh, you know, having enough charging stations is really important. So that's something that uh, certainly we need to, to uh, plan for as electric vehicles become more popular. Um, they also use some uh, additional strategies in, in those uh, types of climates, like uh, running the car for a little while before taking it out, which is, again, something you may do already with your gas-powered vehicle to get it to warm up. Uh, so that strategy works. I think it's just something that is not hit the consciousness of, of electric vehicle drivers here. Um, also wanted to address sort of the safety, uh, because I, I have heard concerns about the safety of lithium-ion batteries. Obviously, there have been some uh, highly publicized uh, explosions of batteries, um, and, and that has led to some concern from, from uh, folks across the state. Uh, first of all, uh, the gas-powered vehicles also uh, blow up, and in fact, uh, the percentage overall of uh, electric vehicles blowing up to the total number of electric vehicles that are out there is actually much lower than the percentage of gas-powered vehicles that blow up. So they're they're safer in in that regard. Uh, you know, catching fire is is a you're you're much less likely to catch fire in an electric vehicle than a gas-powered vehicle. Well, well that's so interesting because uh, one of the things uh, my brother's a mechanic and he mentioned like when he was learning to be a mechanic, uh, when you charged a regular battery for a car, for example, uh, if you didn't do it just right, the battery would explode. Uh, so batteries explode no matter where you put them <laughs> if you don't do, treat them right. The question right. I think people have about the lithium batteries is, say, for example, you get a little bump in your car, right? If that mm -hmm. jiggers the connection with the with the battery, uh, then, uh, you know, it may be something that should be looked at immediately uh, because of the need to line up the wires with a battery and everything perfectly uh, so that they don't move around and, and I think that's why you've seen some uh, lithium uh, scooters and bicycles explode because maybe they got dropped or something and then the, the lineup of the battery isn't done with the wire properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true, uh, but but again, you know, the, the facts are that you are much like, less likely to have a, a fire or, you know, malfunction in a, an electric vehicle than a... Mm -hmm. a um, a, a gas-powered vehicle. And and I, the, the, the drawback is, you know, the, the fire tends to be a little harder to put out because of the chemicals involved in the battery. So you need to make sure that, um, you know, the first responders are, are adequately trained in how to deal with uh, lithium-ion battery fires. They're, they're just a different type of fire. And, you know, lithium-ion batteries are in lots of things. They're in, um, you know, the greeting cards that play sounds, right? Mm -hmm. They're in your... Oh, yeah. your uh, fob for your your car keys, right? They're they're in all sorts of things. They're, like in, they're in meat thermometers. <laughs> yeah, so you know they're 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 everywhere. 
Mm-hmm. Um, just it's not quickly. Just, it's not I, just car batteries we're talking about. I, I, this I is do. a problem with all lithium-ion batteries. We're run, I so appreciate your being here on the show. We aren't running down to the last two minutes, but I do want you to touch on the fuel cells. And I also want to mention the fact that we're having an environmental forum at Eastern Connecticut State University uh, coming on February 5th at about 530. And we'll be sending information out. We'll be blasting it and uh James Albus has agreed to join us there. I'm so happy that you will. And um, so anyway, go ahead about the um, about the fuel cell just for a second. Sure. So uh, hydrogen fuel cells is another zero emission uh, technology. Right now, it's a little more expensive uh, than and, and and certainly less common than the lithium ion battery electric vehicle. But I suspect that it's going to be more popular as the technology improves. Um, you know, th- if uh, if Connecticut decides to go along with the California program in whole or in part, these hydrogen fuel cell vehicles would still apply as zero emission vehicles. But the, the California program does not require electric vehicles. Um, it just it, it speaks particularly to zero emission vehicles. So, um, you know, I think there are some advantages, like as, as you noted, um, you know, the, the potential drawbacks with um, lithium-ion battery safety. Uh, you know, those don't exist with uh, hydrogen vehicles. Uh, you know, one, one drawback, however, is that they are typically more expensive to maintain. Uh, mm-hmm. So electric vehicles with uh, powered by lithium-ion batteries are generally much less uh, costly to maintain than a gas-powered vehicle and, and, the, and a uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, fuel cells can, can be a little more costly uh, because it's more complicated technology, uh, but they still provide uh, other benefits as well. And I guess there's some tax breaks for the hydrogen fuel cell batteries, too. Yes, there are uh, federal tax breaks for both uh, battery electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, as well as state uh, state incentives. So, you know, the federal and state government both see the value in, in these vehicles and, and uh, have offered uh, tax rebates to, to purchase them. Oh, wow. That's fabulous. Hey, James Albus, thank you so much for being on Let's Talk About It. And we so look forward to you joining us on February 5th at Eastern Connecticut State University. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody, and tune in again next week to Let's Talk About It.